Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 9 of Mark chapter 14. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come again to your word, as we consider the person, the work, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that we might respond as this woman did by giving to Christ the best that we have. May no outlay, no cost, no sacrifice, no service seem too little or too demeaning, seem too extreme or too costly for our Lord Jesus Christ. Inflame our hearts with true love to our unseen Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Here in Mark chapter 14, Mark does something that is a little bit of a characteristic of his gospel, something he likes to do where he sandwiches a story around or in the middle of a bigger plot. So he starts off the chapter by talking about the scheming, the active scheming. It's now not just a wish. It's now not just a desire. Now it's become active plotting. How can we kill Jesus on the part of the chief priests and the scribes and the other leaders? Now, in verses 10 and 11, he's going to revisit that issue, and he's going to explain why their initial plan to wait until the floating population that came to Jerusalem for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that immediately followed would dissipate. The population of Jerusalem could double. According to some estimates, it could more than double when you had all these people in. And of course, a lot of pilgrims came from Galilee, where Jesus was from and where his popularity was probably even higher than in the south. So they thought it would be most prudent to wait until The crowds are gone, and then it will be possible to tackle Jesus and kill him discreetly. Well, they changed their minds about that because one of his disciples, Judas, had a plan to betray him to them out of the sight of the crowds when they could nab him without causing a riot. But in between that, Mark embeds this story of Jesus being at Simon the leper's house for dinner, and a woman comes in and anoints him with oil. One of the reasons for that is just so that we will see the contrast. Here's the response of the chief priests and scribes to the Lord Jesus. 
We want to kill him. Here's the response of Judas. I can't take it anymore. And I could make a profit. I'm going to betray him. But in between those negative, hostile, unbelieving responses to Jesus, there's this response of somebody who wasted, quote unquote, a whole year's salary on a few minutes of anointing Jesus with this very costly, very precious perfume. As Mark continues to write his gospel, his primary purpose is to hold the Lord Jesus Christ before us, but embedded in that, included in that, is an ongoing challenge to us. How do we respond to Christ? Because Christ is not the sort of figure you can be confronted with and say, oh, okay, that's nice, and move on. That's an inadequate, that's an unbelieving response to Christ. Christ cannot be a subject of indifference to us. He compels a response. You must do something with Christ when he is presented to you. Now, not everybody responds appropriately, very clearly. Judas does not. The chief priests and the scribes do not. The woman does. But one of the reasons Mark tells us about these things is so that we can see ourselves as well brought face-to-face with Christ through the word of God. And how do we respond? Do we respond as this woman did? Or do we respond with one or another of the varieties of hostility that others exemplify in this passage? The motives of the chief priests and scribes are not spelled out very much in the Gospel of Mark. There are some hints about that. Of course, you may remember that back in chapter 12, when the Lord Jesus was teaching in the temple, they kept trying to stump him. Different groups came and tried to stump him with their questions, with their trick questions, really. And the Lord Jesus defeated them all in that verbal debate. He exposed the hollowness and the hypocrisy of what they had to say. You might remember that as he was leaving the temple, he pronounced that not one stone would be left upon another. And of course, we've seen that when he left the temple, it was like the glory departing from the temple in the book of Ezekiel. God was now done with that place. With whatever degree of clarity, they understand that he's a threat to their position. They understand that he's a threat to their authority and their influence. We're told in the Gospels that the Lord Jesus taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. So this better teaching, of course, could put them out of a job. From the high priest standpoint, from Caiaphas's standpoint, if this leads to some sort of uprising, if the Romans decide to crack down, well, he and his cohort could lose their position. So there's motives of protecting their own little empires. There's motives of jealousy. There's motives of anger and resentment against Christ for exposing their hypocrisy and all of this. Well, in whatever toxic blend those ingredients may have been, they led the religious leaders to say, the best way we have to deal with this problem is to get this guy killed. Now, to me, that seems like a problem. Whenever you have... Your spiritual counsel, so to speak, scheming to kill people, that's not good. That's not how we want to address any of our problems. That's not the solution to whatever crisis comes up. 
But of course, that is often how the world thinks about solving problems. Get somebody out of the way, do whatever it takes, but get rid of them. If they could have sent him overseas, maybe they would have done that. But death was fairly easy to accomplish. Well, in contrast to that, here's a woman. And she comes in, apparently not invited, but she comes in to the meal. And she has a flask. Now, this seems to have been a little bit of a fancy flask prepared in a special way because she broke it in order to get the oil out. So apparently it was fastened together in some way where you couldn't just pull out a cork or something like that and pour it out. Or maybe she broke it because she wanted to make sure to get every last drop. Now, when she does this, the response of the other people who are there is actually what Mark highlights. I mean, he highlights that it was an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard, which is imported from India. So you already know it was expensive just from its origin. And Mark specifically spells out that it was very expensive. But after highlighting the cost of this, the value of this, what he highlights is how other people responded. Now, we learn from John that Judas would have been eager to take this money as a donation because he was planning to skim some off the top. But here, that's not even the motivation. Here, the motivation is, what a waste. This could have been sold and given to the poor. The average wage for a day laborer was about one denarius per day. And by the time you take out 52 Sabbath days, well, in a month, uh, in, a, in a year of 360 days, maybe it wouldn't be 52 every year. But by the time you take out Sabbath days and feast days, that's about one year's worth of laboring every day and getting a denarius a day. Which, of course, if that's your situation, you can't save that because you've got to spend some of it to eat. You've got to spend some of it on your day-to-day expenses. But a whole year's worth of wages vanished in a moment. And the reaction of the people there was, what a waste. Well, you've seen open hostility from the scribes, from the chief priests. You'll see betrayal, resentment, fed-upness from Judas in verses 10 and 11. But now from people who are not averse to Christ in a way, they're gathered with him, they're eating with him. Simon is hosting this dinner. But even from them, there's this reaction that Jesus wasn't worth it. Now, when you put it that way, that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Out of everybody who was gathered there, was there anyone other than this woman who knew that Jesus was worth it? They started to rebuke her. They were angry with her. Now, Of course, they had some pious-sounding cover. This could have been given to the poor. And this is an, an area that does need to be addressed with some care. The Lord Jesus says, you always have the poor with you. You can do them good whenever you want to. And traditionally, Passover was a time for sharing your abundance with those who had less. Jesus is not averse to that. 
You may remember that in the Gospel of John, when Judas went to betray him, the other disciples thought that he'd given instructions to Judas to give something to the poor. Apparently, this was one of the things, among many others, that the Lord Jesus did, was he distributed from the goods that the band of disciples had in common to those who had less. And, of course, you're familiar with Matthew 25, where the Lord Jesus says that inasmuch as we've fed those who were hungry, clothed those who were naked, visited those who were in prison, as much as we've done it unto one of the least of his brethren, we've done it unto him. Or you might remember in Galatians that when Paul was given the right hand of fellowship and encouraged by the other apostles to go and carry on with the mission to the Gentiles, he was exhorted and encouraged to remember the poor. So care for the poor, concern for almsgiving, concern to share what we have with those who have less is legitimately a very big part of Christianity. We have the example of Christ. We have the example of Paul and of the other apostles. We have many statements, and we understand from Matthew 25 that this will come up on the day of judgment. So in no way do we want to say, oh, well, who cares about the poor? And if that's what you get out of this passage, I don't think you're reading it right. Because you have to read this passage in connection with everything else. But this concern for the poor was put in opposition to the Lord Jesus. Now, if we make those things conflict, then Jesus needs to win. Our better approach is not to make those things conflict, I believe, is to view serving the poor as one of the ways that we serve the Lord Jesus and therefore to do it according to his word, according to his instructions in his name. So I'm not calling for hard-heartedness towards the poor. The reality is that probably all of us could afford to be a little bit more compassionate, wisely compassionate, but still compassionate. However, if your zeal for this good work or that good work leads you to say that something that was given to Christ is a waste, I think we need to check our hearts if we find ourselves saying that. Because what is Christ worth? Is Christ worth a year's worth of wages? Is Christ worth your life savings going up in smoke? Is Christ worth your life, your health? Is it worth it for the sake of Christ to leave family and friends and go far away? Is it worth it for the sake of Christ to endure hardship? Is it worth it for the sake of Christ to spend And to be spent. Well, you know the biblical answer to that. It's here in our passage. But what is your answer to that? Can you take up the place of this woman and say that truly Christ is worth it? Sometimes you see people sitting around calculating whether this or that sacrifice will be worth it for Christ. Now, I understand we are called upon to count the cost. We are called upon to seriously weigh and estimate what the Lord would have us to do and how we can do it. And I'm not against counting the cost. But I am against saying, no, Jesus is not worth that. That shouldn't enter into the negotiations. He is worth everything. He is worth more than you could ever give. 
In fact, those who have, from our point of view, given everything for Christ, find ultimately that it was no sacrifice at all, that they are better off, that they are happier than they would have been. They find that Christ's service is perfect freedom. They find that being poured out as a drink offering on the altar of Christ is joy. We can never give more to Christ than he has given to us. And his worth is revealed. Of course, his worth is revealed throughout Scripture. His worth is revealed in many ways. But his worth is revealed here by the different response that he has to this woman. She comes in and makes a very lavish gesture of affection, of value for Christ. And what is she met with? She's met with carping, criticism, and harsh words. Sometimes that happens too. Sometimes people accuse us of being fanatics. Sometimes people are quick to say how unwise we are to serve the Lord as we do, to sacrifice what we will for Christ. That's okay. Let them do that. It doesn't matter. How did Christ respond? Well, he starts off with these very simple words, let her alone. In other words, stop criticizing, be quiet. And I want you to see that. Here's a woman who loves Christ and who serves him. Other people, other followers of Christ, no less, start criticizing her. But Jesus defends her. We sometimes feel criticized for our service. We think people don't notice or we think that they only notice what we get mixed up on, what we do wrong. But who rises to defend us? Well, it's the Lord Jesus himself who sees, who weighs our service, and who speaks up in our defense. Whatever criticisms may come our way, what does it matter? I mean, if somebody has good observations about something we can do better, that's fine. Take it on board. Learn, grow, improve. But do not learn the heart of Christ. Do not project from narrow-minded, small-hearted critics. Do not project from them onto Christ as though he were speaking with that mindset, with that attitude. How does Christ speak of this woman? Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? He defends her and he defends us. Why is Jesus precious? Why is he valuable? Why is he worth all that we can give and more? Because of his heart for us. There's other reasons, but because of his heart for us, because of how he sees us, because of how even a cup of cold water given in his name will by no means lose its reward. Your service may not be as dramatic, as visible as what this woman did. Although, remember, this is just a dinner party, so it's not like it's on a huge world stage. It may not be as dramatic as that, but the Lord sees and the Lord defends your service for him against carping and malicious criticism. That's one reason he's worth it. Now, there was also a special, a historical reason why this was a singularly appropriate gesture, and that had to do with where she was, where they all were in this moment in the history of redemption. The Lord Jesus was very soon going to be killed and buried. And, of course, he was going to be killed in a judicial murder. He was going to be buried hastily. The proper rites and procedures would not be followed. So a few days before, this woman came, and she poured out costly oil, anointing his body for burial. I don't know that she knew that that's what she was doing. I think she was just responding to the love of her heart. She had to give her best to Christ. 
But he knew. He knew that it was preparation for what was coming. We have ongoing opportunities to serve the poor. But that opportunity to show love to Christ in that way would not always be there. Well, for us as well, there may be particular moments, special occasions to show love to Christ. Let's not hold back. Let's not say, you know what? We need to keep something in reserve for tomorrow. Let's go all out. Let's give all that we are to Christ. And then Christ adds this note of honor to what this woman did. Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. It was inevitable that this story would be included in the gospels when the Lord Jesus wound up his defense of the woman with that remark. She was being criticized, caviled at for what she had done. The Lord Jesus says her action, her service is going to be told wherever the gospel is preached. And you can see that he's already fast-forwarding in his mind beyond his death and burial. He's assuming the resurrection. He's assuming his ascension into heaven. He's assuming the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He's assuming that in the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is going to be proclaimed throughout the world. Well, he was right about all of those things, of course. We're still in that. And as we look at this passage this morning, Christ's words are once again fulfilled. As we remember what this woman did, we tell it to her perpetual honor within the church of God. The Lord Jesus holds her up as an example to the rest of us, as a memorial of outstanding love and of devoted service. Now, there are a few implications that arise when we consider this passage as a whole. Obviously, first of all, we need to test ourselves. Hopefully, the fact that we're here means that we're not like the chief priests and scribes plotting on how we can undermine Jesus. But just because we're here doesn't mean that we're wholehearted in our devotion to Christ. It doesn't mean that he's the reason for our existence. It doesn't mean that we really do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to our God. So we can ask ourselves this question. If by God's grace we're not like Judas, we're not like the chief priests and the scribes, might we fall into the category of Simon the leper's other guests rather than into the category of this woman? How is our devotion to Christ, How is our service to him? Do we see that the Lord Jesus is worth all and more than all that we can give? That's one implication. That's one test we should draw for ourselves from this passage. But then again, do we see the Lord Jesus as the one who defends us, as the one who is worthy of all that we can give him? because of the way he acts on our behalf? Do we see him as a grudging taskmaster who will do his best to extract from us 12 hours work for 10 hours pay? Is that what we think of Christ? 
Because if so, it's no wonder our service is limited and grudging. If that's how we see him, it's no wonder we have to have our arms twisted to give up or sacrifice anything for him. But that's not a biblical view of Christ. This woman brought precious spikenard ointment. And the Lord Jesus repaid her with a perpetual memorial with an action that is recorded and that is known around the world and through the ages. Who gave more? Did she give more to Jesus or did he give more to her? Even just narrowly in terms of this passage, I'm not even talking about how he died for her on the cross. I'm not talking about how he forgave her sins. Just in the terms that we have here in these few verses, did she do more for Jesus or did Jesus do more for her? Well, you know the answer to that. You can never give more than Jesus. You can never work beyond his ability to reward. You can never exceed him. Well, isn't that an encouragement to service? I'm not saying we should work hoping to get some signal honor. But I'm saying that we can work in the confidence that however much sweat of our brow we put in, the reward will be abundantly above and beyond. Paul speaks about a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Sometimes we feel that our service is overlooked or unrecompensed. Oh, we need to come back to a passage like this one and repent of our hard, our narrow thoughts against the Lord Jesus. He is more generous than we can imagine. And so our, serve, our hearts should be wholehearted in loving him and our service should be fruitful and abundant because he's not going to take advantage of us. You see, sometimes that's the secret worry that holds us back. Well, if I'm all out for Jesus, if I give him everything, what will I have left over for me? Let Jesus worry about that. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be concerned. Let Christ the Lord take care of you. If you challenge him that you're going to go above and beyond him in your giving and your service, you're not going to succeed. He always does more. And then with reference finally to the happy moment of a baptism this morning. We want to give our best to the Lord. Do we not want to give our children to the Lord? Of course, we know they're his originally. We know they come from him. We know that he entrusts them to us as a stewardship. But sometimes we have our own plans, our own agendas for them, our hopes and dreams. But one of the lessons of baptism is that our children belong to the covenant and to the people of God. They are his. They are his before they are ours. They are his in a way that they will never be ours. And so when we bring an infant, any child, to be baptized, among other things, we recognize God's claim upon them. And we give to God what is most precious to us. We give to God our very children. Can we trust the Lord Jesus with our kids? I think you know the answer to that one as well. We can trust him with ourselves, with our souls, with our salvation. 
We can trust him with our day-to-day circumstances. We can trust him with the need we have for daily bread. And we can certainly trust him with our children as well. Amen.